This is Ethan, and I'm here with Dave, and together we are Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast, episode 93-inch. On this week's episode, we conclude our interview with legendary guitarist Richard Bennett, known for decades of touring and recording with Neil Diamond and Mark Knopfler, plus early work with Weird Al. Oh yeah, he's also Bermuda's brother. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al it's a podcast about Weird Al. Seriously, the whole podcast is about Weird Al. You don't have to listen, but we're glad you are. Now, a lot of people were amazed to learn last week that Richard Bennett is none other than John Bermuda Schwartz's brother. You know, I thought it was common knowledge that people knew that Richard and Bermuda were brothers. But then again, you know, there is a slight chance that not all of our listeners have the family trees of all the Weird Al's band members printed out on their bedsheets like we do. Ah, yeah, you're right. Probably a few of them have them printed on their shower curtains instead. Ah, now it all makes perfect sense. We cannot wait for you to hear the rest of this awesome interview coming up this episode. Ethan, both you and I got something really cool in the mail this week. We got our copies of Susan McNabb's brand new book, The Opposite of Famous, A Hollywood Memoir. Yes, it is awesome. I haven't read it yet, but just looking at it, I know that it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait to dive into this book and find out all about Susan's amazing Hollywood career. If you have not picked up the book yet, you can do so over on Amazon.com. It's available on both Kindle and in paperback formats. And we realized something pretty cool. So last week we had both Richard Bennett and Susan McNabb on the show, and they both have worked with Billy Joel and Weird Al. Susan was in Billy Joel's music video for We Didn't Start the Fire, and Richard worked with Billy on three studio albums, including the iconic Piano Man album. And the similarities don't stop there. Both of them have been pictured with facial hair. Of course, what Ethan's talking about is that Susan played the lead Robert Palmer girl in Weird Al's UHF music video and wore a mustache for that. And Richard wears a full beard and mustache combo. And the coincidences don't end there. Billy Joel and Weird Al both had mustaches, too, early in their careers. And just like Susan, they eventually shaved them off. <laughs> So that noise can only mean one thing. We have a message on our 347 Spatula Hotline. The 347 Spatula Hotline, the official hotline of Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast, is sponsored by Angel Valenzuela and David Cash, two amazing Weird Al fans and podcast supporters. Let's take a listen. Maybe a past guest called in to tell us how they're doing. Hey, Dave and Ethan. This is Jason Alchol. I was your... Uh guest on episode 47 inch um and uh congrats on coming close to five percent of your 2000 inch goal anyhow on your last episode you guys mentioned that you like hearing from past guests so i figured i'd i'd call uh and check in and I, i'm good i'm good thanks um i got two weeks of vacation time coming i'm i'm thinking of going out to darwin so that's it yeah, thanks, guys. Hope you're good. Oh, that's so cool, Jason, that you want to visit Darwin, Minnesota for your vacation. Have we got just the sponsor ad for you? 
as you pack your car with pickled wieners and Spider-Man comics for your long road trip to Darwin, Minnesota, be sure to swing by Troy, New York on your way there to pick up some vegan Mexican food. This week's episode is brought to you in part by vegan Mexican restaurant Burrito Burrito in Troy, New York, home of the two-pound double wrap in the quesadilla Burrito Burrito. Come on down to Burrito Burrito and Burrito Burrito, your Burrito Burrito. Find them at burritosquared.com and at Burrito Squared on Instagram. And remember, not every burrito is a Burrito Burrito Burrito, but every Burrito 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 can be Burrito Burritoed. Well, Jason, I hope you enjoy your road trip, and please say hi to Bernie from both of us. Oh, goody! We have another voicemail on the 347 Spatula Hotline. Let's see who it is. Hey, podcast world, it's Joe Jaffe here, friendly podcast listener and Patreon supporter. I'm calling because last night I got the pleasure of drinking a can of the new Dare to be Stupid beer, courtesy of Adrian Vasquez. And I want to say it's pretty sneaking majestic. It's perfect. It's just the right amount of hops thrown in there. Not too hoppy as other IPAs might get, but it's great. I can't recommend it enough if you can get your hands on it, and if you're over 21. Because if you're not, don't drink yet. Not for you. Great. Thanks so much, guys. Keep the great podcast episodes coming. Talk to you soon. Bye. Wow, Joe, thank you so much for the call. I am so jealous that you tried the Dare to be Stupid beer from Icarus Brewing. I cannot wait to give that a try. And I cannot wait to cry into one of them. And while we're on the subject of stuff and fans, Dave, I think we've got a Melanie situation on our hands. A Melanie situation? You mean like, uh, uh... That's exactly what I mean! Oh no! What happened? Did someone tattoo our names across their forehead or give mohawks to our cats? No! Although, that would be pretty cool, actually. I mean, I wonder who will be the first to get a Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast tattoo. Well, probably the same person who would give a mohawk to our cats. Anyway, what happened? Oh, yeah, right. Okay, so we got an email from someone this crazy drawing. and They, they drew me, and I'm dead, and I am ripped my beating heart out, and then you're standing there looking at me with hearts in your eyes. Oh, yeah, that was sent by our great listener, Chris Steer. Wait, it was? Yeah, Chris sent us tons of fun drawings over the last year or two. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, thank you for all your fun artwork and support of the podcast, Chris. And uh, thanks for this one, too. Let's check out This Week in Weird Al News. Now, Dave, as you know, today is February 10th, 2021. And you know what that means? It's Al and Suzanne Yankovic's 20th wedding anniversary. And it is a big week in the Yankovic household because tomorrow, February 11th, is their daughter Nina's birthday as well. From all of us here at Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast, happy 20th anniversary, Al and Suzanne Yankovic, and happy birthday, Nina. February 10th is also the 20th anniversary of Joel Miller's key role of best man at Alan Suzanne Yankovic's wedding. Now, last week on episode 92 inch, we announced that Joel Miller himself will be our guest for episode 100 inch. We are so excited to talk to him about his important role in Alan Suzanne's wedding. We are telling you this all now, so when episode 100-inch comes around, you are not surprised that Joel and Al are friends. We do not want any more life-altering bombshells for our listeners. You know, like Richard and Bermuda being brothers. We apologize for any distress that that may have caused you. 
So Dave, what did you do to celebrate this past Sunday? Well, you know, probably the same thing everyone else in America was doing. Oh, great. Yeah, me too. So how did you watch it? You know, the film UHF 27 times in a row? Well, you have to stagger it. First, you start on the TV. Then you get one going on the laptop. I project one up on my wall. You know, it's really tough to fit all 27 screenings in. But it's tradition, so that makes it okay. Nice work, Dave. Now, for any non-Americans who are confused, Sunday was February 7th, or 2-7, so it's 27 day. Or, as our European friends call it, 72 day. Now, a couple of weeks ago on episode 91 Inch, we got to talk to our buddy J.W. Halford all about his awesome short film, Ghost Dogs, that premiered at Sundance Film Festival. And there is some really exciting brand new merchandise if you head over to ghostdogs.net. They just added a sticker, a pin, and a poster, and everything has free shipping. Plus, they still have all those awesome t-shirts available, plus information to get the official Ghost Dogs beer. Ooh, we need to get some official Ghost Dogs beer for Joe Jaffa to review next. Great idea! Don't forget, two-time Grammy-nominated podcast theme songwriter and accomplished guitar player Jim Kimo West's new single, a slack-key cover of Paul Simon's Feeling Groovy, drops this Friday. For more information, head on over to jimkimowest.com. On last week's episode, we aired part one of our interview with legendary guitarist Richard Bennett. We learned all about Richard growing up with Bermuda as his younger brother, as well as his work with Weird Al on his first album, first album demos, and the Placebo EP. This week, we will dive into Richard's amazing career, his studio work in solo albums, and his work with Neil Diamond and Mark Knopfler. Plus, we finally find out the story behind his infamous Bobcat nickname. Let's pick up the interview already in progress. I'm curious on the placebo EP, of course, the one that's $400 on Discogs, uh, you are credited as Bobcat Bennett. What's the origin of that name, Bobcat? Yeah. <laughs> I don't I was, you know, just been a rockabilly. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'd always loved rockabilly, and I was old enough to where I actually lived through it the first time, but there was sort of a rockabilly uh, revival going on. Uh, in large part due to um, the stray cats in, in in England, and it kind of started there and then seeped over back over into the states. So that was my rockabilly name. So that wasn't just for that recording. You were using that name elsewhere. No, not really. Now <laughs> <laughs> uh, somehow Al got hold of it, and that may have been through John or something. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, that's how I ended up being that on that uh, on the Bobcat. I stopped that. I think you need to bring it back. Bobcat's great. <laughs> well, looking back on it now, you know, at almost seventy, I uh, I'm certainly no longer Bobcat. Uh, but anyway. You know, you go through these things, don't you? One thing that I was really surprised about, and um, I, I talked about this to Dave, and Dave's like, oh, yeah, I've known that for a long time. But this was new to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I was listening to I'll Be Mellow When I'm Dead, right before your guitar solo, Al goes, Al, Bobcat! And I've never oh, heard that. That's or, right. I've, yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten about that. 
I have to go back and listen to that. But now that you mentioned it, yeah, that's right. I remember that. <laughs> Obviously, it was it was being thrown around, right? You know. <laughs> yeah, not many people know. But anyway, there you go. There's the not so interesting story of Bobcat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Weird Al was trying to get that nickname to stick for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what else to say about all of that. It's just, just something <laughs> I was a name I had at the time. Yeah, kind of a, a self a self inflicted gunshot wound of a nickname. But <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I found very interesting is many years later, you and Bermuda ended up on the same release, this um, seemingly kind of out there release in Germany called 30 Years Bear Family Records. Oh, right. Uh, you did the song Big Bear Two-Step Instrumental, and John was performing on Ripmaster's song Bear Knuckle Piano. What can you tell us about 30 Years Bear Family Records? I mean, first off, Bear Family is is the, the do-all and end-all of reissue labels, I think. And uh, it started out in Germany. It was, it was, it was, it's a guy named Richard Feitze, and he started out as a bootlegger uh, putting out vinyl LPs hmm. pre-CD. Right. Um, late 70s. And uh, whenever I was in, uh, in Europe, uh, Germany or Holland, um, you know, I would always seek out these, uh, and it wasn't called Bear Family then. It was called C, I think CCL, Classic Country Legacy or something like that. Hmm. Um, but I'd seek out these vinyl records and buy them, you know, because I was always into old hillbilly music, <laughs> country music of the 40s and 50s. And uh, so I always loved these albums, and then it morphed into becoming a legitimate concern where he was licensing things legitimately and getting to original masters to reissue stuff as opposed to stuff out of his record collection that it became big family. And uh, I don't, at some point in the oh, late 80s or something, um, I somehow became in contact with him or he got in contact with me um, because I had a stash of demos publishing demos uh, by Johnny Horton, who I was, and still am, a huge fan of. Mm -hmm. And I had these publishing demos through uh, a friend of mine who worked at the publishing company that had acquired these Johnny Horton demos, uh, the publishing company that Horton used to write for. The Welk, the Lawrence Welk Publishing Company, had acquired American music that Horton was writing for in the early 50s. So anyway, a friend of mine uh, was heading up the Welk Publishing Company, and I just found a flyer, asked him if he had any Johnny Horton demos. Around. So I ended up with two reel-to-reel tapes of these Johnny Horton demos. And somehow, uh, Richard Weitzer had found out about it and contacted me, you know, about hearing them and, so and so. Anyway, he and I hit it off really well, and uh, we became friends. Oh, cool! And uh, I just was kind of part of the Bear family, family, 
after that, <laughs> and on to do transfer work for Richard for the label. And I would just do this for as a favor for him. A lot of times uh, he'd be dealing with uh, three crack tapes, um, and and he was ninety percent deaf in one ear. So you know, wisely, he didn't trust himself to do these transfers, three-track to two-track stereo transfers. And uh, he was always real suspicious of outside engineers and stuff. So he would contact me of any stuff that was here in Nashville that emanated from Nashville hmm. to just just go in and do the transfer form. And it really, it, it didn't involve anything uh, these things were so well recorded and well balanced that you could just take a ruler and slide the three faders up, and it was a mix. You know, you just had to make sure that <laughs> yeah. things were in phase, and that's all you had to do. Uh, and then, and then you transferred the three tracks down to a stereo mix, and uh, which is what they did back then, anyway. But I learned I learned what three track was about, which when I started recording. Three track was already gone, and we were using four track, and eight track had already begun to come in. So I never really understood three track, but for the most part, three track was the bass and drums on one side, usually the right side, and everything else on the left side except the vocal. Hmm. And the vocal was right up the middle. And uh, that sounds like a weird balance, but Man, after about 10 seconds, you go, I completely get it. I love it. Wow. And that's why those vocals always sat so well in the record, that they were that loud. They just had a lot of, um, a lot of geography, a lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot of space to be and to live, you know, mm-hmm. within the record. And uh, so yeah, I used to do a lot of stuff like that for Richard. And, and he and I are still friends. And uh, so anyway... You know when when the Richard would do a a box set every five years. I think he did a twenty five year anniversary that I think I contributed something to on, mm-hmm. and a thirty and a five. And uh, you know, so anyway, it's a long winded answer. I'm sorry, but that's how I ended up on the Bear Family thing. And uh, and I think I think Richard had. Um, reissued some of Rip Masters stuff over the years. Oh, okay. I think. I think. Um, so anyway, that's how John would have ended up with Rip on there. <laughs> so it's kind of a coincidence, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I, I mean, we didn't go into it together. Obviously, we we were playing on different things, but mm-hmm. ended up on the box together. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I'm curious how you got your start with Neil Diamond. Well, that's another long-winded story, but um, <laughs> I, I was uh, I, I was working with a rhythm section in Hollywood a lot, doing a lot of recording with this particular rhythm section, and uh, the drummer got a call, uh, and Neil was one Neil's band. He, they needed a new drummer for whatever reason. I don't know why, and. Uh, Dennis St. John, who's this, uh, the drummer I was working with a lot in, at that period, um, got the call. And he kept turning it down. He didn't want to leave town because he was kind of getting established in studio work, and that's what he came 
he came from Atlanta, doing a lot of recording in Atlanta, which at that time was still a recording center. But he came to L.A. to establish himself as a session musician there. And that was beginning to happen, and he didn't really want to go out. But they kept calling him, and they kept, this went on for a couple of months, it seems like. And finally, I think Neil called him personally and kind of twisted his arm a little bit. So he went out for a weekend and, and came back and uh, was converted. He absolutely loved Neil and the whole thing and agreed to go with Neil's, you know, be playing Neil's band. And at that time, Neil was only doing weekends. Uh, he'd go out, you know, a Friday afternoon or Friday morning and play Friday, Saturday, Sunday somewhere and either catch a red-eye back Sunday night if he could or early Monday morning. So basically, that left uh, the week free for Dennis to, to do his session work. And uh, that went on for a few months, and Neil and Dennis hit it off well. Uh, and uh, I, Dennis caught Neil's ear and said he needed a better band. <laughs> and that uh, Dennis, you know, was working with this group of studio musicians and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, um, that all transpired. And uh, frankly, we never even, re well, we never auditioned, per se. It just oh, wow. was a done deal. It was a done deal. Wow. And, you know, we met with Neil, I think at the end of 1970, somewhere in the winter of 1970, and began rehearsals in uh, the beginning of 1971, and then started going out and gigging straight away. So anyway, <laughs> that was uh, that was a wonderful thing. I mean, I think I think our first or one of our first shows with Neil was like the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City, you know, for eighteen or twenty thousand people. Holy wow. cow! <laughs> I, I couldn't, you know, my knees were sick. I was just still pretty <laughs> fresh. Phoenix at that point. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd done, been doing studio work for a few years, but that was a different deal altogether, you know. And, uh, you know, Neil's another one who, to his credit, like Al, um, you know, knew when something was happening, not to tamper with it, to let it evolve and to let it grow and to give it room to grow and watch it grow, you know, and help it grow. And, uh, you know, so that band remained uh, incredibly static uh, for a long time, um, to Neil's, you know, to Neil's credit. Um, and I was, it, it, there were additions made to it, but uh, the basic band rhythm section stayed the same for a long time. I was the only idiot to leave, you know, to voluntarily. <laughs> um and and it's only because I just uh, I don't know I I just felt I had a few other things I wanted to do, mm -hmm. and I was kind of in my mid thirty mid thirties at that point, and I knew if I didn't break away from it, as painful as it was, I didn't want to leave because it was just too good. But right. um, I knew if I didn't leave at that point, that I I wouldn't do anything else. I'd still be there, and uh, you know. Most of the most of the people stayed there for they had forty plus year careers there, yeah. and uh, I just had a few other things I wanted to try. 
So anyway, that's that's why I left. I mean, you stay with him for 17 years. That's a career in itself. You know, just 17 <laughs> yeah. years is, is not like just, oh, I was with him for a couple of years. That's a long time to be with anybody. Yeah. It was a long time. Yeah. 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 And I was chafing at the, chafing at the bit just a little bit. And uh, I felt that that was enough, enough time. I needed to move on and do a few other things. I wanted to produce records. I'd begun commuting to Nashville and playing on projects there, and I liked the way that felt. And really, uh, my future uh, as being a record producer more than being a musician at that point. So, you know, we moved to Nashville with that for me in mind. Uh, and that happened, And uh, but also the playing continued, too. My, my session work got very busy here. And uh, I stayed on with Neil for a couple of more years through that. We came here in 1985, and uh, you know I got I got busy and I got bu- busy producing records. And uh, uh, the way things worked then was uh, artists were on a release schedule. You know, you had a it was like a merry-go-round, really. But <laughs> artists had to get an album out. I don't know, a couple of times a year, or at least once a year. And that was already scheduled. That was already scheduled before the the recording was booked. And, uh, you know, that was in place. And when you signed on to produce an album, that uh, release date was in your contract. And, uh, you know, while it was, you know, while the turn-in date was flexible a little bit, you know, short of an act of God or the artist getting sick there's you know something major happening you kind of had to stick to your turn-in date and everything was based on that um you know it was an eight week usually an eight week um window between turning the album in and manufacturing and releasing and if you didn't meet your turn-in date as i say by a little bit here or there um Ultimately, the producer was responsible for that. Oh wow! Okay, and you were responsible financially for it. Right, right. So <laughs> anyway, that worked then, and and it worked okay. You know, it was fine. But uh, a couple of times, what had happened was I I contracted to I was contracted to produce an album, and uh, the office, the Neil's office, had called in the midst of it. And saying, um, you know, asking me to be out in L.A. Uh, at such such a date for a couple of weeks rehearsal, and then we'll go on the road for three weeks. And I didn't have that flexibility contractually. I didn't. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, so I explained that, and and Neil was very good about that, and uh, they got a sub for me, a fellow named Hadley Hawkinsmith, great guitar player in L.A who had actually subbed on that gig before. Uh, once for me, and I think once for uh, the other guitar player. And uh, so Hadley came in and took my spot on that tour. And then I think it happened a second time as well. And uh, it just, it just I never was fired from Neil or by Neil. And I never officially quit. It just kind of morphed into being Hadley's gig okay and and i liked that i was comfortable with that 
because I didn't want to be fired, and I didn't want to quit. You know. So you're still so just you're all, still in the band. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah. Funnily enough, I funnily enough, I ended going ended up going back in 2017 for the 50th anniversary tour. Wow. Uh, but that's that's another story all another story altogether. Wow. Um, anyway, after a couple of tours, it it just evolved into Hadley's job, and um, then I was based full time here in Nashville, yeah. producing and yeah. recording. Yeah, and that, of course, um, about eight years later, led to uh, my association with Mark Knopfler, and uh, so that was things. All you know, things all always work out, or usually work out the way they're supposed mm-hmm. to. Yeah, looking looking at this list of folks that you've recorded with and performed with and toured with, I mean, um, obviously we mentioned Neil Diamond, Mark Knopfler. Uh, Billy Joel, Barbara Streisand, Ringo Starr, the Partridge Family. I mean, was that just through some of the session work, or what led into that? Yeah, that was all. That was all. That was all through doing record dates, and uh, that's it. You know, if you're if you're fortunate enough to uh, do that kind of work and and get into session work, particularly there in L.A. at that time, uh, you know, you just. Uh, it's an embarrassment of riches that you walk into every day. <laughs> and not always, but, but, you know, you were exposed to all kinds of great artists that you'd work with. And, uh, you know, even people that you didn't appreciate at the time. Um, I don't know, you know, you know, I, I used to, I used to stand up on sessions with people like Andy Williams and Peggy Lee and, um, Johnny Mathis and people like that, mm-hmm. that at the time, uh, you know, I was I was young and arrogant, and I, I just was wanting to play rock and roll. And you think, oh God, these you know these old middle of the world guys. God, I look back on it now, and it's they're the highlights of some of the recording I did. I'm so proud to have worked with people of that caliber. Yeah, yeah. they were great. They were great. There was there was a reason they were stars. And yeah, they weren't rock and roll, but. <laughs> That doesn't matter. They right. were great. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I I remember I did three albums with Johnny Mathis, and I remember wow. being on the floor. You know, they were live dates, and you know, putting the headphones on and doing the rundowns of the tunes. You know, before we actually recorded them, and hearing that voice in my headphones, it was like playing to a finished record already. You know people who were that good and that recognizable. And Brenda Lee was the same way. I did an album with Brenda Lee um, in the mid-80s. And I I was still living in L.A. at the time, but uh, was commuting to Nashville to play on projects. And this was one of them. And I remember putting the phones on and doing the tracks and thinking, God, you know, there she is. And she was together, man. She was She'd be waiting for us to get it together. She had her <laughs> together. And it was like a finished record. You know, it's an honor to play, an honor to play with those people. Yeah. But anyway, that all came about because I was just, happened to be one of the on-call studio guys at that time, you know. Wow. You just get a call. You just get calls. Cool. And uh, really, yeah, it's incredible. I look back on it now. It's just, you know, at the time, it's not that you take it for granted necessarily, but you're just real busy at the time, and you don't 
you can't always come up for air and assess things. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you're just working. You're just doing two and three sessions a day and putting one foot in front of the other. And it's only after the fact that you can look back on it. You go, holy Christmas, man. I was so lucky. <laughs> All of us were so lucky. <laughs> and uh, and that's, of course, how, what led to the Nolfer thing. It was just a session call. And, oh, uh, wow. Yeah, a call for three days' worth of sessions. And, uh, you know, that led to a 25, 26-year association. <laughs> Were you hesitant to go back on, on tour, you know, once you started working with Knopfler after, you know, I, I guess almost some of your concerns back when you were with Neil Diamond, or, or was it just a, a different time in your life and you were ready to go back out on the road like that? Yeah. Uh, yes, it was a different time of my life. And I'd, I'd been off the road for about eight years, and in those eight years, um, produced a lot of records and continued to play on a lot of records and realized that uh, I, I guess I didn't really want to be a record producer after all. Um, I always loved making the records, uh, but all of the other attendant things with it, the business end of it and yeah. all of the other stuff, I hated and I wasn't very good at. And uh, and also, I, I always felt I was in an adversarial role um, with the label. You know, I always felt it was the artist and me against the label. Right. And I hated that. And looking back on it now from 25 years now, I, I, I was wrong. I, I, I wasn't, you know, I should have never been that way. You should be in cahoots to some degree with the label. You stick up for what you need to stick up for. But I always felt an adversarial relationship there. Anyway, that's not the way to produce records. <laughs> um, well, not in this. <laughs> yeah. Not in Nashville, anyway. It wasn't. Right. And... Uh, so anyway, having done that for eight or ten years, I realized that I was uh, not cut out for that. And also that I really missed being in a band and what that felt like and what that was like to go on tour and to play in front of lots and lots of people. And also, you know, when, when Mark Knopfler asks, uh, do you want to be in my band? There's only one answer to that. Again, uh, so that's what I did. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's been a wonderful association and uh, an immensely challenging one and an immensely gratifying one as well. And, and I learned so much. You know, I've, I've learned so much from that situation and from him at a time in my life when I'd been around the block a bunch of times already. And, you know, of course you can always learn more, but I kind of thought I knew the ropes pretty well by then. And, uh, man, I just learned so much from him. Great. Now, a few years before your association with him, Weird Al did a parody of one of Mark's songs, and Mark actually played on Al's parody. Is that something you'd ever discussed with Mark? Uh no, only in only in the, the, to the extent that uh, John was playing on it, that my brother right. was playing on that track. Um, but I but I think uh, both Mark and Guy Fletcher contributed mightily to that uh, the Alps record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, I, it's 
It's nothing we, we've really talked about much. Back in 1979, Weird Al did a parody of Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand's You Don't Bring Me Flowers. His version was You Don't Take Your Showers. It's an unreleased <laughs> song by Weird Al. <laughs> Have you ever heard of that song, or has, has Neil ever commented on it? I you're aware. remember the title now vaguely. That would have been, you know, only because John would have mentioned it. Right. Uh, but I don't, I don't think I've ever heard it. <laughs> and and whatever reason that remained unreleased, I don't know. Uh, one of two reasons: either Al didn't like the the cut, or didn't think it was worthy of release, or uh, uh, you know Neil and the other writers didn't grant him a license on it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they didn't want it done. So I I don't know which of that was the case, but. Okay. I think that would have been the two reasons. On a personal side, you actually have released, as of this recording, six uh, solo albums, including the first one in 2004 and the most recent one in 2018. What can you tell us about these solo records? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I never had any eyes to be an artist uh, myself. Um, and in fact, I was approached to do an album. Um, God, this would have been maybe 25 years ago or something. And I declined to do it. I didn't want to do it. Hmm. Um, but, uh, how, let's see, how do I get into all of this? I don't know. You know, I'd always, I've always, along the way, written the occasional instrumental. And uh, I guess in 1999, had, had a pile of, a little stack of instrumentals that I'd written, you know, recently. Mm-hmm. And began thinking about, uh, you know, that I should go in and, and uh, record them and do demos on them with eyes to maybe getting some placement um, with with the tunes in a movie or an advert or TV or oh. something or another. Oh, yeah. Okay. And and uh, so that's what I did. And uh, I, did the, I, I did a handful of them really quickly, uh, real bare bones. Uh, at a friend's studio, and uh, I, we did three or four of them, and all of a sudden, you know, the engineer, my friend, and some of the guys who were playing on it, they kept saying, oh, man, this is going to be a great album, great album. And <laughs> I said, man, I'm not making an album. These are just demos and blah, blah, blah. And I continued to do a few more, and I don't know, at some point, um, four or five of them began hanging together in a certain way, and they had a sound, and they had a a direction, and at that point, I guess I um, allowed myself to think that I was making an album. <laughs> at which point, then I seriously began writing for the rest of the album. Yeah. And uh, so, anyway, um, I finished it up, and I shot it, and I shot it, and I shot it, and nobody wanted it. And uh, so I, I, uh, I just put it out myself, and it was the best thing I ever did because I completely eliminated the middleman. And it was at a time when you could start doing, putting things out yourself, and it wasn't considered a vanity project. All kinds of people were putting their own records out then. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just worked out to be the best thing I ever did, but mainly because I then went from not wanting to be an artist to that's all I ever want to do now. <laughs> and uh, yeah. <laughs> awakened that in me 
And I began seriously, you know, taking my writing seriously and, uh, you know, putting an album out every two or three years. And I'm very proud of these records. They're not from a self-serving place or an egotistical way in any way whatsoever, but I just think it's it's taken all of, um, I don't know, all of these years of, of playing on other people's records and playing all kinds of different styles and being as many things as you can be to as many people as you can be and distilling it into a into who I am finally and and shaking hands with that and embracing that and really writing for that um, specifically. Uh, plus, it's just a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's it. I can, uh, I can go back to all of these wonderful people who I've worked with and con them into writing my liner notes. <laughs> I'm an author and like that, you know. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I'm just in this COVID year. Um, I, I've got an album that's nearly finished, but it's kind of parked and on hold. Because um, I'm just waiting to record one last song that I want to include in this album. And that was in March. And then everything, everybody pulled their shingles in, right. uh, in including me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, hopefully at some point in the next few months, we can all get some vaccines in our arms and I can get back to work and finish up this album, get it out in the, in the spring or summer. Yeah. Yeah. But in the meantime, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had a lovely thing happen. And, um, uh, one of those early albums code red cloud nine was re-released on vinyl on yield brother records, which is a vinyl only label. Yeah. How cool. Yeah, it was it's like a real gift, you know. They did such a good job on it. Uh, 180 gram vinyl and uh, really terrific packaging. The uh, you know it's the original packaging, but it's been expanded with some new photographs. And I wrote a little essay for it, as well as the uh, original liner notes by Dwayne Eddy. Um, And uh, it's very cool. It just sounds great really proud of it for collectors out there you got to pick this up head over to yieldbrotherrecords.com to pick it up and not only is there just the uh the album there's also for just a few bucks more a premium version of the album that comes with an actual uh signed eight by ten and some stickers and how cool is that yeah yeah it's very cool yeah i, I you know personally sign we'll sign you know to anybody who wants one of those and then that comes along with the uh, the other stuff and uh, with with the album, but uh, yeah, I'm very proud of it. Uh, it's it's music that's made to be heard on vinyl anyway. Mm. Uh, it's sort of a I don't know. It's kind of a jazz come bachelor pad lounge album, you know. Yeah, and uh, it just lives very well on vinyl. So anyway, that's that's exciting and going on and and. Uh, <laughs> You know, apart from that, I'm I'm doing a lot of uh, practicing and writing and cooking and reading and working out and staying fit. And that's that was 2020. Hey, and <laughs> that's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> same thing. Same thing. We're all all doing. Um, but anyway, here's to a, here's to a brighter 2021 and 
vaccines and uh, hopefully some a less chaotic uh, leadership situation. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I do have one more question about... Actually, I actually have two more questions about you and, and your brother, John. I guess my first one is, obviously, John has this amazing, incredible archive collection of Weird Al memorabilia, and it's really everything from his career, but also... You know, he has a you know vast music collection. He has a symbol collection. Um, do you have a, a collection of your own? Uh, I do. Uh, not of not of Al stuff per se. Although I, I think I've got all of his albums. But um, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm uh, uh, a, a terminal record collector. So I have really about seven thousand seventy eights and Whoa. that I listen to wow. all the time, and wow. loads and loads of vinyl albums and forty fives. And, um, you know, I've succumbed, I guess guess I'm a guitar collector, although I didn't set out to be that. Um, But after all those years, you know, you just amass stuff. You you find yourself with a collection. Right. So, yeah, I'm afraid I collect records and guitars. (laughs) And and I I have X amount of stuff over the years of... uh, Neil Diamond things that have that have just uh, amounted up, you know, over the years, and uh, as well as Mark Knopfler stuff from tours and yeah, sweats and T-shirts and that kind of stuff. <laughs> sure, but I don't I don't think of myself as a collector, and I, I certainly don't think of myself as a hoarder right. in any way. <laughs> Not that I'm accusing John of that, but um, <laughs> he's very systematic about it, you know. Right. Right, <laughs> and uh, yeah, if if you haven't had this conversation with him already, uh, you should ask him about his symbol collection and him sampling all of them and having like this online. Well, not online, but you know he's got it all in his computer. Each symbol and what they sound like, and he can kind of go through stuff on his computer, and then you know pick out what he thinks he needs and go straight to it and pull it. So um, incredible. That's pretty. That's pretty <laughs> staggering to me. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty staggering. I, I have a certain system of, of filing records, but um, nothing, nothing that uh, that laser targeted. You know. Yeah. And my other question relating to your brother is, you know, Dave and I and, and Al and, and so many people know him as Bermuda. Do you ever refer to him as Bermuda, or is he always John to you? No, he's always John to me. Yeah. <laughs> Bermuda came, <laughs> came, you know, later, and uh, uh, that was, uh, you know, John was etched in my mind. Right. Uh, as opposed, <laughs> I don't call him Bermuda, and he doesn't call me Bobcat. So. <laughs> it's a good trade-off. <laughs> trade-off. It's a win-win situation. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys have any nicknames for each other as kids? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, except you f- or something like that. You know, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I don't remember that going on. <laughs> you know, but we, you know, we talk every couple of three weeks and you know, email back and forth now and again. But, uh, I just had a little exchange with him uh, this morning, as a matter of fact. That's great. Yeah, yeah. 
But uh, man, it's really good talking with you guys. This was great. This was so cool. Thank you so much for yeah. for joining us and and bringing us through your career. I mean, what an incredible career! You, you mentioned Discogs earlier. If you click on your name on Discogs, there's more than one page, and that's five hundred to a page. So there's a lot. To- to sift through especially if someone decides to be a richard bennett collector they are going to go broke because you've done so much you've done such incredible work and i highly recommend all six of your solo albums which are available now you can find them on amazon and as i mentioned yieldbrotherrecords.com for that awesome vinyl re-release of code red cloud nine and uh, we can also find out some information about you and and uh, get to all your socials by heading to richard-bennett.com and cannot wait for that new album to come out hopefully sometime this year right yes i'm sure it'll be out sometime this year um yeah if you you know if you go to the website richard-bennett.com say uh there's also you can preview you know my albums there and listen to bits and pieces and you can find out how to order stuff through there yeah and there's a discography that that's very interesting uh, you know something i've never been even though i go to discogs and occasionally buy stuff through them mm. i've never looked myself up on there <laughs> you should <laughs> I'm, gonna go, I'm gonna go do that now in in fairness i have to say there's another richard bennett guitar player uh who's a, an acoustic guitar player sort of in in the the new acoustic and bluegrass uh, music world. And he and I, of course, get uh, jumbled up together, understandably. And then there's Richard Rodney Bennett that gets tangled up in there as well. Um, <laughs> but I'm, but I'll, I'm going to go to Discogs and uh, narcissistic <laughs> look at my discography there and see what's going on. If, and, I feel like if I was on Discogs, I would be ch- refreshing my page every day, even though I'm not <laughs> releasing new stuff. I would still just be so curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that might be a good place to go find some of these albums that I played on that I don't don't have copies of. I never was really good um, back in the old days in L.A. anyway on, on all that stuff I played on. Um, I, a, a lot of it just I, I never bought or never got copies of so um, I don't know as, as I've gotten older I've tried to you know find things that I don't have that I've played on but it's not necessarily a mission or anything but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. those things like those Andy Williams and Johnny Mathis records I'd love to have yeah oh sure again Richard this has just been really remarkable having you on the show so really appreciate you you coming on and and you know gifting john that drum set and bringing him to the dr demento show that fateful day well ethan and dave thanks i'm flattered to be on and uh anytime if there's stuff we haven't covered give us a ring thank you richard what a fun interview be sure to head on over to richard-bennett.com for information about richard and to sample all of his albums I was so excited. This week, I just received my vinyl copy of Richard's album Code Red Cloud Nine, along with an autographed headshot and stickers. It's really beautiful. You got to check it out. Grab your copy at yieldbrotherrecords.com. Now, once our listeners got past the fact that Richard and Bermuda were brothers, a few of them were asking us, wait, if they're brothers, why do they have different names? Well... Now, first of all, typically siblings are given different names. I personally don't find it weird that 
you know, one brother is named Richard and the other is named John. Well, the fans asked, so we decided to reach out to Bermuda for the full answer. First, we asked Bermuda if he or his brother used a stage name. And the answer is yes. So with that news, we just had to find out a little bit more. We then asked Bermuda what his birth name was. And he said it was Jonathan. Aha, mystery solved. We hope that clears things up. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Discover Darwin, promoting tourism in Darwin, Minnesota. Not only is historic Darwin, Minnesota uh, beautiful, it's also leathery. Darwin, Minnesota is home to Darwin MC. MC? Like Master of Ceremonies? The person who runs an open mic? Nope. MC Hammer? Nope. MC Lars? Nope. 1,100 in Roman numerals? Nope. Someone who misspelled the shorthand for centimeters? Nope. All right, I give up. Darwin MC stands for Darwin Motorcycle Club. Whoa, like the Sons of Anarchy or Mayans MC from TV? I have to assume Darwin MC is exactly like Sons of Anarchy or Mayans MC from TV. Wow, so do you think they run drugs? No, they... Oh, do you think they run guns? No, actually they... Money laundering, it's gotta be money laundering. No, actually they just fix motorcycles. Well, I bet they still do some crazy stuff. Like what? Well, let's just say I wouldn't be surprised if they were smuggling in twine for the ball. So visit Darwin, Minnesota on your next expedition. Discover Darwin more than just the twine ball. And after you visit Darwin, Minnesota, be sure to visit discoverdarwin.biz. Each week we are able to bring you this podcast absolutely free thanks to sponsors like Brito Brito, Angel Valenzuela, and his son David Cash, Discover Darwin, Jackson Scoggins, and all of our amazing close personal friend Patreon supporters, Jared, Zeb, Blair, Allison, Javier, and Kenneth. Our newest Patreon supporter, Aaron, and so many more. Revenue from our incredible supporters on Patreon.com slash 2000inch allows us to continue doing what we love, which is making fantastically fun, funny, and family-friendly Weird Al podcasts for you each and every week. We'd absolutely appreciate your consideration in joining our pretty stinking majestic Patreon family for as little as $1 per month. Looking for another way to support the podcast? Head over to shop.2000inch.com for official Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al podcast t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, tank tops, face coverings, pillows, and so much more. Our Patreon supporter, Mike Minnick, just received his free t-shirt that he won on our Patreon page for being the first person to correctly guess Richard Bobcat Bennett as our guest on last week's episode and this week's episode. Mike posted a fun 3D photo wearing his reverse logo t-shirt over on our Facebook group. Enjoy your shirt, Mike, and thank you for your support of this podcast. You can find us online at weirdalpodcast.com or 2000inch.com where you can get information about our guests and listen to past episodes like episode 92inch. You know, last week's episode, the one with the first half of our interview with Richard Bennett? Please join our Facebook group by heading to group.2000inch.com for episode discussions and other exclusive content. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram via at 2000inch and at youtube.2000inch.com. Be sure to share our posts and tell your friends to gill and chill. We love it when you leave us voicemail on our 27-hour-a-day podcast hotline, 347-SPATULA. You might even hear your message on the air. 
You can catch our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or the podcast app of your choice. Whichever you choose, be sure to hit that subscribe button so that you do not miss any episodes. New episodes drop every Wednesday. We will soon begin airing our series of bonus episodes where we sit down with Richard Bennett's brother, John Bermuda Sports, and go page by page, picture by picture, inch by inch, centimeter by centimeter, MC by MC, through his brand new book, Black and White and Weird All Over. Time is running out for you to grab the book if you want to be able to follow along with those episodes. Plus, it's a great gift to give someone for Chinese New Year or President's Day, or better yet, Al and Suzanne Yankovic's 20th wedding anniversary. What about Valentine's Day? We would make a good gift for Valentine's Day, wouldn't it? Uh, I suppose. Don't you think that's kind of a stretch, though? You're right. The traditional Valentine's Day gift is a spatula after all. Well, thank you once again to Richard Bennett, John Bermuda Schwartz, Jason Alchil, Joe Jaffa, Chris Sear, Mike Middick, Jim Kimo West for our incredible theme song. And thanks to all of our listeners, subscribers, Patreon supporters and sponsors, and everyone else who makes this episode and podcast possible. Stay tuned to Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast for more amazing episodes coming soon, including our special episode 100-inch with Joel Miller. I cannot wait. Just six more episodes. March 31st. Mark your calendar. That was Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast, episode 93-inch. You won't believe where Jason Elchill goes on his next vacation. Everything Jason Elchill does is fascinating. I don't call him Bermuda, and he doesn't call me Bobcat, so it's a win-win situation. <laughs> <laughs>